You know, sometimes it feels that St. Paul has lost his mind. You know, in our Corinthians passage, he's saying something really wild. Paul is saying that anything that comes between us and God, anything, our lies, the insults we hurl to each other, the oppression and death that we visit on each other, has been wiped away, that peace and justice has been restored, not by anything that we've done, but by Jesus who has done this on our behalf. And there's more. St. Paul says that the point of human life is to wake up to this reality, to live as if we know this is true, and to be ambassadors to the world on behalf of the one, Jesus, who has reconciled us to God. And the only way that we can live as if we know this is true, the only way we can know and feel this is true, is if we find Jesus beautiful. Now, how do we find Jesus beautiful? Because if we're honest, I don't think we really think of Jesus that way. We have other ways that we think of Jesus. First, maybe we find him impressive, right? Or maybe we find him important. Or we find Jesus kind. Or we find Jesus comforting. We find him friendly, but beautiful. That's almost never on the list. And yet it is so crucial. You know, we have to ask ourselves, why do we struggle on this front? And we have to talk about it. And that's going to be the theme for today. Because if we don't find Jesus beautiful, It's often because we are being distracted. Our attention is on something else that prevents us from seeing Jesus for who he actually is. You know, in our modern Western context, the main thing that distracts us from seeing Jesus rightly is our comfort. We prioritize the things that we want And this focus on our desires is the main thing that keeps us blind to who Jesus is. And so we need to open our eyes and we need to see Jesus rightly. This matters. Because if you don't find Jesus beautiful, I'm going to tell you up front, this is how it plays out in our lives. If Jesus isn't beautiful, then your comfort has the last say, the ultimate say, on how you live your life. And when comfort has the last say on how you live, not only will you be a poison to any community you are a part of, but you will divorce yourself from the communal life and love found in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So let's turn to our readings. Let's, let's, let's explore this. Let's see what we mean. Now, really, we're going to land on St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. That's going to be where we end today. But in order to understand what Paul is saying, I think the best way to do it is actually to uh, see what Jesus is sharing first in the parable of the prodigal son. 
And once we have a grip on the prodigal son, I think we're going to be in a better place to see what St. Paul is saying to us today. So let's turn to the text. In the insert, if you want, there's the page number to the Bible. You can have the passage open, you know, and you can follow along as you're able with the sermon. Now, the prodigal son, or sometimes known as the, uh, the parable of the lost sons, is probably the most popular parable that Jesus has delivered. I think we all know it, or at least have heard of it, right? And the focus of the parable, when it's talked about and explained, is almost always on the younger son, with the main idea being that God will always accept you no matter what you've done. And although that may be true, we often sentimentalize this parable when we do that, focusing exclusively on the younger son, because the target of the story isn't actually wayward sinners. It's the religious community. Church folk, like us. That's who Jesus was talking about. If you've noticed in the gospel reading, yeah, sinners came forward, but also the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. There was an extended debate between them. So that's who Jesus is talking to. And what Jesus is addressing is how blindness, narrowness, and self-righteousness is destroying us and those around us. You know, the original listeners wouldn't have been teary-eyed at this parable. They would have been very upset at what they heard. So let's go over this parable and see the implications it has for our community and our very lives. Here's the recap. Father has two sons, an older and the younger. The younger wants his inheritance and he wants it now. And incredibly, the father gives it to him. The young son runs away, spends it on wild living, ends up entirely broke. Wakes up like, whoa, what am I doing here starving? He makes a plan to return to his father. He wants to repent. And then he knows he can't be a son, but maybe he'll be a slave. At least he'll have food, right? He comes back, and before he can get out his full repentance, the father welcomes him back into the family as a full son and throws a party. The older son notices his party, is very upset, refuses to go into the party. The father has to come out and deal tenderly with his older son. And then the story ends. We're wondering, is a son going to enter the party? Well, we don't know. Because in a real sense, that's going to be up to us, up to you. Now, how I think it's best for us to understand this parable today at St. Michael's is to see this parable is describing an attack on a community. All right? This story is about an attack on the community. And let's see how. First, the young son attacks the community. He attacks the, uh, the family, right? The family is the little community. And the young son attacks it. He attacks it by demanding, he attacks it economically. He demands his uh, inheritance, which we're going to explore later. It's not just a bunch of cash. The father has to sell off land, forever diminishing the wealth of his family. But more deeply, the young son attacks family cohesion, togetherness. Because in effect, what he's saying to the father is, I don't want you to be my father. Give me the money. You know, the commentators will tell you that by the standards of that time, the father was well within his rights to throw the son out of the family by blows. 
This young son had crossed the line very severely with his insolence. But instead, the father simply gives him what he wants. And that's not all. The older son, quote-unquote faithful son, also attacks the family. Because when the young son returns, the older son refuses to be part of the, uh, be part of the, uh, of the family party. The father actually has to come out of the party to uh, talk to him, which by the standards of that time was incredibly wild. Patriarchs, fathers, don't go out to speak tenderly to insolent sons, right? The older son, when he talks to his father, notice that the language, it says, listen, listen, you, as if the father was some guy in the street. The commentators, again, will tell you, just for that way of speaking to him, he earned, he would have earned an ejection from the family, maybe by blows, for his insolence. But the father responds tenderly. Why do these sons act this way? Well, honestly, it's because they want something else. They love something else rather than loving their father who has already given them everything. And you know, the Bible has a word for this. It's called idolatry. You see, the young son really wanted the money, didn't want the father. And to be honest, we can be like him. We can do the Christian thing. You go to church, do the Bible readings, volunteer. But in our heart of hearts, what we really want is the blessings, the health, the wealth, long life, the good things. Not really interested in the Father. And you know, the older brother, he also shows his cards, what he's really about, when his dad throws a welcome party for the young son. The other older brother shows who he really is because he refuses to go into the party. He doesn't want to celebrate because he wants just the father's things. He doesn't want the father, he wants the stuff, which is now being spent on the young son. And here's the point. They both want the stuff. They don't want the father. So what we need to notice is that there's bad boy idolatry, which to us seems really obvious. People who are partying hard and don't care about the things of God. But there's also good boy idolatry. You go to church, do the dumb thing, but you're not interested in the father. And they both, these both, these ways of being, they both destroy community. The sons aren't loving the way they should. They are loving in the wrong way. They love the good things the father gives them, but they're not loving the father. And you know, St. Augustine, so good. When he talks about this, he, des- he describes this as disordered love. Right? And he says that in disorder, that's where sin is found, in disordered love, when we love things more than we should. You see, the older brother, he had his, set, his heart set on the things of the father. But when he saw them being spent not the way he wanted, he blew up. 
And we do the same thing. There are things in our hearts that we are dead set on. That's what we want. Our desires, our comforts. And when our comforts are at the center of our hearts, we will fight tooth and nail to shape our surroundings, to support our desires, and we will refuse to enter any community, any party, that doesn't reflect what we want, even if that party is set up by the Father himself. Our comfort, our desires can't be the basis of our lives. It has to be the love of God. And listen, this is not a generic claim, right? Just love. Because the way that the Bible, the way God talks about love is not identical with the way that our culture, our world talks of love. The love of God is to be found in God's very nature, in the Trinity, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't a sermon on the Trinity, not today, but we have to contend with it. Because you see, the Trinity is a community of love, of each person in the Trinity glorifying the other, not taking, but giving and giving. And this giving is at the center of capital B, being. It's at the center of all reality, of all that is. And therefore, community is at the center of human life. And so think about this. If you were made in God's image, which you have been, then you are meant to put God at the center of your life. We are created to say, you know, I'm going to serve God and not myself. I'm going to meet God's desires and not my own. And if you do this with God, and what God's doing, you know, that's what God's doing within his own self, giving, giving. And if we do that, we will know peace and joy because God will fulfill the desires of our heart in a way that a life lived for comforts pretends to do, but actually leads to disaster. If you live for God and not your comforts, then you'll be able to give to others. But if you try to live for yourself, you're going to end up broken. You're going to be too needy, too angry all the time. And like the, like, like the elder brother. And you're going to be too addicted to your desires, like the younger brother, to care about others. You will live into a toxic personality. And what's scary is likely you won't even know it. This is why you and I have to have our disordered loves healed so that God is the beauty of our life and the center of our life so that we can say, you know, I don't care what you give me, God. I don't care how many of my prayers you answer. I love you. I find you not just useful to get things. I find you beautiful. I serve you for who you are in yourself. This is the way life is meant to be lived. All human life must find Jesus Christ beautiful. And a life that is living with Jesus at the center of their life, the beauty of Jesus at the center of their life, will be an honest and true fountain of love for those around them. But how do we miss this? How do we miss it? 
Let's consider the father in the parable. You know, even though the father was well within his rights to very treat his sons very harshly for their behavior, it's important that he didn't. We would want to harden our hearts against those who hurt us. I know I would if someone treated me that way. Right? But if the father had hardened his heart, no reconciliation would have happened. What the father did was so deeply costly. And it may not be apparent, but we have to consider the words of Jesus. In the parable, in the original language, Jesus uses the word bios instead of the Greek word for property. There was a word property. He doesn't use that. He uses bios when he's dividing the inheritance. Because the inheritance wasn't primarily uh, money or stocks. It was land. Right? But the land wasn't seen primarily as property the way we see it. Bios gives it a deeper meaning. And this way doesn't, this way of seeing things doesn't come naturally to the modern Western mind. We gotta take our cue, I think, from our indigenous brothers and sisters. And although much of, much, there's much diversity between our, the First Nations people, Metis, Inuit, they do share a deep abiding connection to the land. As Dr. Leroy Little Bear says, and I quote, the land is a sacred trust from the creator. The land is the giver of life like a mother. The land is a source of identity for Aboriginal people. And Elder Bob Joseph explains, and I quote, that knowledge and cultural practices, traditions, identity built up over the millennia are connected to the land. So in a real sense, the land doesn't belong to them. They belong to the land. It's their life. And we need to inhabit that way of thinking in order to uh, understand what's happening between the father and his son. To give the son, the young son, the money he's demanding, he had to tear his land apart. He had to tear his life apart. He suffered for his son's sins. Are we waking up to what we're meant to see in this parable? Are you seeing it? How are our souls healed? We have to find Jesus beautiful. It's not, it's not more belief. It's not more knowledge. It's not more books, more religious commentaries, more expert theologians. It's finding Jesus, beautiful. For St. Augustine, it was realizing how Jesus gave up equality with God to come to us, to be with us. He gave up his life to welcome us as children into the family. His eyes were open and he saw what Jesus had done for us. And he says, and I quote, out of slaves, he had, he had made us your sons. Out of slaves, he has made us your family. Jesus giving up his life for us, for him, brought a fire to St. Augustine's heart and it needs to light a fire in ours. And it's this truth that enables us to be the new creation. Right? The new creation St. Paul is talking about this heals our souls and brings healing 
and life to our community. And notice that St. Paul says that when we're in Jesus, we are new creation. That's verse 17. Now, to be a new creation means we see others in a new point of view. Because when we see according to the flesh, we value others as they fit into our agendas, as they work towards our ends, our desires, right? How do you buttress what I want? What makes me feel comfortable? And Paul says, we can look at Jesus that way, right? Oh, I only believe this part of the Bible because I'm comfortable with this part, but I don't like that part, so I don't listen to that, right? Driven by comfort, and that's not the way. When we find Jesus beautiful for what he has done for us, his love opens our eyes and we are a new creation. When we see that everything has been changed by the cross, we see things differently. God's decision to enter into our brokenness, to heal and restore. And all it takes is a yes from us for it to take hold. But often we hesitate. Because as Jesus takes us into his life, his life becomes our life. The cross, the tomb, the resurrection, the ascension, we become one with that. But we hate the first two, right? The cross and the tomb. You know, Jesus takes all our pettiness, our evils, the insults that we throw at each other, the oppression and death, every last bit of that, and he takes it into himself and then he destroys it on the cross. And our lives are transformed in him. We die with him in order to be reconciled with him. And this is hard for us to accept, right? That's a lot of death that has to happen in us for us to get this life but it has to happen, and so much has to die. The claim that we are good has to die. The belief that we can get through life without constant repentance has to die. Our self-will, our desire for a life of comfort has to die. Our reliance on anything else except the grace of Jesus Christ, the mercy he purchased for us on the cross, the life he earned for us by his death, our self-reliance, oh, it has to die, has to die, has to die. Without this death, there is no life. But in its wake comes true life. At the other end of this death, death to our petty comfort, is a new life lived by the fruit of the Spirit. But what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Imagine a community like this, a life, your life, defined by this. And all this comes from God. It's a gift. Paul says, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Are you in Christ? then you are a new creation. It's a fact. But experiencing the reality that you are a new creation, that can stay dormant so long as comfort is at the center of your life. 
So how does it become awake? Paul says twice, as you exercise the ministry of reconciliation out of the power and knowledge of the one who has reconciled us to himself. My friends, you have to find the gospel, the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus beautiful enough that it compels you to reconcile with others. We can't be the older brother refusing reconciliation because things aren't going our way. We must follow the way of Jesus. Just as Jesus dove into the darkness for you, you dive into the darkness for those who think of themselves as your enemies. Love them even though they hate you. Even though they're utterly undeserving, bear their scorn. Pray for them. I know we hate this. I hate, I hated seeing it when I was reading it. And I'm uncomfortable saying it out loud right here, but it's true. I have to tell you the truth. The love of God only becomes alive in us when we move in humble compassion toward the sin and the darkness of another. and become ambassadors of Christ and ministers of reconciliation. You know, every Sunday we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Let's bring this home. You know, there are some pains that that we've suffered that we're not in a place to connect with those who've hurt us. I understand that. I'm not advocating for emotional recklessness. That takes time. But if we're really honest, there are some conversations we could have, but we are choosing not to because we're choosing to nurse our injured ego, our injured pride, and we don't want to forgive. We don't want to reconcile. It's become more comfortable to endlessly run the narrative of how they hurt me and how dare they, and we're through. But that narrative can't thrive in a heart that finds the gift of Jesus beautiful. You know, there's somebody that you need to talk to. There's someone that you have to reconcile with in order for the healing love of God to take hold in your life. And if you find that it's a conversation you could have, but just don't want to, and therefore you won't, I'm inviting you to reconsider the cross of Jesus and what it means. Take time this week, even today, to pray. Read the Sunday readings again. Pray through them. Ask God to open your eyes, open your heart to his love. If we do this, as healing and love will define our church community and our very lives for our great good and for God's greater glory. Together, let's pray. Gracious Lord, in compassion you call us. By your mercy, open our ears to hear your voice and hearing you to return. 
Remove the scales from our eyes and unveil for us the beauty of your son, who out of slaves has made us your family by his death on the cross. Be our delight, be our satisfaction. Awaken in us a new sense of expectancy, as those who put their trust in you will never be put to shame. Glorious Lord, we are yours. In Christ's name, amen.